Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. The October 7th massacres by Hamas of communities in southern Israel have sparked the worst crisis in the region since the Yom Kippur War, 50 Octobers ago. That war changed everything, not just between Israel and Egypt, the main combatants, but also in the wider world. This current situation has the same potential to affect more than just Israel and the Palestinians living under Hamas rule in Gaza. I wanted to talk about it with two colleagues who have lived the story and reported from the region for just about half a century. Zev Chafetz, American-born, has lived in Israel since 1967. He is an author, columnist, and at one time ran the Israeli government press office during Menachem Begin's premiership. Ned Temko has been a correspondent in the region for UPI and the Christian Science Monitor, for whom he still writes a regular column. Both men have written numerous books on Israeli politics and the conflict. One note before we begin. In the aftermath of the Hamas atrocity, I have started a written outpost of First Rough Draft of History at Substack. Find it at FRDH First Rough Draft of History, all one word, no spaces or punctuation, dot substack dot com. My conversation with Zev Chafetz and Ned Temko was recorded nine days after the massacres. That was nine days with heavy aerial bombing of Gaza, but still perceived as a lull before an anticipated Israeli ground assault on Hamas's strongholds in Gaza City. So I began by asking Zev Chafetz, who lives in Tel Aviv, what the mood was in Israel. Well, it's hard to say what the mood in Israel is now because Israel is not just one place anymore. There's the Israel of the people who've been Uh, forced to leave the southern part of the country, uh, including towns like uh, Sterot now, and places like Ashkelon and Ashdod, which are in the southern part of the country, which have taken tremendous amount of missile fire from Hamas. There are places like Tel Aviv uh, and the center of the country where we've had a moderate amount of uh, missile fire, usually two or three mornings a day and so forth, and most things are closed here, many things are closed, but still people are going about uh, at least some of their daily business. Of course, everybody here is apprehensive, and then there's the situation in the north where where Hezbollah and Israel are skirmishing at the moment, and uh, Israel has now uh, asked the people who live along that northern border line to evacuate. So I sometimes hear the world, let's say the BBC, which is the world as far as we're concerned here, uh, lamenting and focusing on and maybe even obsessing over departure of Hamas uh, supporters and other citizens from Gaza. But we also have at least half a million people here, Israelis, who are now without a home. That's the basic situation, I would say. There's still a lot of animosity toward Bibi in this country. It's left over from the nine months or so and for the, from the 18 years that he's been prime minister or however long it's been. On the left, there's a very strong desire to, uh, to make Bibi the goat of this war, which I share, by the way. I think that it's 
it's obviously his fault first and foremost. But today the headline in Haaretz, which is the sort of the liberal paper here, the most liberal paper, is the head of the Shin Bet Purity Services has taken responsible responsibility for his failures. Netanyahu has yet to take responsibility for any of his. Ned, listen, you should just jump in and ask, if you've got questions for Zev, you should feel free to ask them too. That's a good summary of the situation, but I was thinking also in terms of, it's it's interesting at this point in time, you get more, uh, you get this feel for the story, not so much from reading Aretz or the New York Times or listening to the BBC, you get it because you go to Twitter and there everything is inflamed. And I guess what I was asking you, Zev, is, is, is that, inflammatory from both sides kinds of assessment of what's happening reflected on the ground in israel certainly not in my neighborhood which is central tel aviv must be in some neighborhoods because that's the way things are in every country different places have different responses (laughs) i would say that uh israel has gone the government and the public sector has gone from shock to uh, rage to something now closer to a cool, cooler assessment of what we have to do, what Israel has to do. I don't think it'll be less lethal than what it would have been 10 days ago, but I think it will probably be more effective. There is very little concern here. I was looking at the BBC and the last week or so of its broadcast, its podcast twice a day. Virtually everything that they're broadcasting now is a concern about the Palestinian plight, the plight of the mm. refugees, the plight of the people who've, uh, you know, had uh, bad experiences. So I can say my opinion, which is I don't give a good goddamn what happens to those people. It's a massive problem. Uh, they created it. I keep hearing about innocent Palestinians, maybe they are. I've never met a population where everybody was innocent. I think that they're probably innocent Palestinians, civilians, and many people who supported Hamas in Gaza. The good go with the bad, this is the wartime. So if I were Hamas and I cared about, the, you know, I had a real concern about these people, I would come out with my hands up and say, let's end this and, you know, and we're guilty and they're innocent, and, and that would be the end of it. But that will never happen, I don't think, because I don't think Kazakhstan yeah. does care if I If people. I can jump in, uh, I mean, Zev, you're absolutely right. That's not going to happen. And I don't find it at all surprising in, uh, that very few Israelis have kind of the emotional space to say, oh, my aching heart, what's going to happen in Gaza? Because I think... One of the striking things for me, and I've known you for a long time, and I've covered both sides of this conflict, I hate to tell my own creaking body for like 46 years now. (laughs) And what is most striking to me is how suddenly elemental on both sides this conflict has become. That, That for the Palestinians... Obviously, and it's well reported, this is all about the Nakba and are they, are we being pushed out again? Um, but I think what what's even more striking for me is this kind of sense of sudden vulnerability that 
Israelis and Jews naturally feel from from an attack which isn't just missiles horrible though they they were but but I think what's going to be what's so difficult to predict about what comes next is when you have sort of a, a wholesale slaughter of kids at music festivals of whole families I think it's hard to overstate how much how strong the echoes of that are of as Michael as you said used the word pogrom of a kind of you know east european jewish vulnerability and of course the holocaust ultimately that israel and zionism for all its you know the arguments on one side or another that was the problem zionism was supposed to answer and it's it's so profoundly rocking on both sides of this conflict what hamas has done presumably intentionally that 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 in addition to the issue you raise zev which is is there a more effective way of doing whatever the israeli military is now planning it, it introduces this terrible question of okay uh let's say you can get hamas whatever that means what happens next and and i speak both not only from the perspective of the palestinians and and I don't think anybody really, I mean, can ignore that the the minimum possible civilian cost on all sides is probably a good thing in life in this conflict. But also for Israel, you know, the right wing in Israel makes the far right wing is always using as a trope. Why did we get out of Gaza? But they forget it wasn't a tie dye hippie who who led them out of Gaza. It was Arik Sharon, who was no softy, who had excellent <laughs> rational reasons to get out. And I think Bibi, in his heart of hearts, must know the last thing Israel wants to do is have responsibility for going back in and running Gaza. So may, so, so elucidate me, Zev, on what, what happens the day after. Ned, I never was able to elucidate you even once in all the years <laughs> we've known one another. <laughs> but I mean, this but, is um, this is a problem, though. Before we get into elucidation, yeah. Yeah. which is will be speculation anyway, to go back to what Zeb said was saying at the beginning, and this is what makes me speaking now as a diaspora Jew worried is that the country is divided bitterly and has been for a long time, but there's also the question of the sheer ineptitude. <laughs> of this particular coalition. And so you have this terrible event, which flew under the radar and massive attack. When you think about the day after, you have to think about, do you have confidence in organizing the necessary, in Israeli eyes, in my eyes, the necessary removal of Hamas from Gaza do you have confidence, Sev, that this particular group of people leading the country can do that? Yes, I do. <clears throat> I'm not certain that they will, but they certainly have the ability to do it if they want to do it, if they have the, the um, fortitude to do it. Uh, getting rid of, Gaza, of Hamas <clears throat> is a very simple proposition. We have to kill every single person or capture, but I think prefer kill everybody who has anything to do with Hamas. 
starting from the foot soldiers and the guys who bring the coffee and up to and including the senior command of Hamas, both in Gaza and also the senior command of Hamas where they're hiding in Arab countries in Qatar or other places in Syria. Uh, that'll take a, quite a long time. It won't wipe out the memory of Hamas. It won't wipe out the spirit of Hamas, which lives on in places in the West Bank and in uh, Jordan and wherever Palestinians are. But uh, in the specific case, geographic case of Gaza, yes, I think we can do it. And I don't think it will be easy, but I don't think it will be as hard as people think. The question is what comes after, in my mind, is a is a non-question. Because what comes after, something comes after, and then something comes after that, and something comes after that. And if you constantly have to know what's going to come next, uh, you won't be able to do anything. It seems to me that in the case of Gaza, having served as myself as an, an officer in the Israeli occupation early days in the 70s in uh in uh, the West Bank. I don't think that Israel should do that. I don't think the Palestinians in Gaza are capable of having a democratic election, a real one. I think that the world, including the Western powers who are so concerned about the morality of what Israel is doing and is about to do, ought to have some sort of a come together and give us a, an international force which will control Gaza, set it up, help to rebuild what needs to be rebuilt, perhaps with some assistance from us, and then try to see if there's a, a basis of people, a base of people who don't feel warlike toward Israel. And if so, then, then they can set up a government and monitor it. That, would be, that, in my mind, is the best solution. There are other solutions, but... Um, and on the, on the question of tomorrow, what, what comes next, before we think about what comes next in Gaza, mm -hmm. we have to think about what's coming next in Lebanon and yeah. from Lebanon. Yeah. Because we very well could be find ourselves in a two-front war. And if it's a two-front war, uh, Israel, I think, will have to be even more brutal. It will have to uh, do things in Lebanon that it might not do in uh, Gaza, because the Lebanese resistance, uh, Hezbollah, have the sort of rocket power that uh, Hamas doesn't have. Hmm. So, you know, Israel has many kinds of weapons. <clears throat> Some of them are utterly conventional. Some of them are less conventional. Some of them are non-conventional. And I don't think that Israel will be in a mood to lose thousands of soldiers to uh, in Lebanon, and I also don't think that Israel will be able to cope with the situation where tens of thousands of missiles are fired at Israeli targets throughout the country. So, uh, you know, I'm not the Israeli government. I don't work for it. Mm -hmm. I haven't worked for it since 1982. Uh, I'm not especially a hawk, usually. Mm -hmm. I'm not uh, a Likud voter. I'm not certainly not a fan of uh, the far right. But I don't think that it's possible that even the most reasonable people here will not contemplate whatever it needs to, they need to do in order to prevent this from becoming a two-front war that we can't win. Ned? 
Yeah, well, I, I, that has always <laughs> been my concern. I'm much more concerned on a military level about Hezbollah than Hamas. I mean, Hamas is capable of murdering young kids in cold blood and lobbing missiles, which are frightening, presumably, if you're in a shelter or forced or, or worse if they hit. It's nothing compared to the arsenal that Hezbollah has. Uh, rather, I mean, both in size and in sophistication. These have guidance systems. They're, they can hit the entire country. They could hit infrastructure like Ben Gurion Airport. They could certainly hit all the major cities. And it is a frightening prospect because any government in any country faced with a kind of lack, palpable lack of control will, will want to fix that and want, want and feel a need to fix that. That's part of what I think has in the first couple of days after the Hamas attack. I mean, Hama, uh, Zev, you talk about a slightly cooler, more rational thought process now. I think in addition to the sheer horror of what happened, you, I can't imagine there wasn't an all, another element, both for the military and for the government, of kind of guilt at just how haphazard and useless the response was once it was known what was happening. And the natural way to kind of cover that is to do what Bibi said, that we're going to crush everybody, we're going to win, they're going to lose. And that's in a way easier. That's the wrong word, but you know what I'm talking, I mean, I think easier to do in the South than it is in the North. I think the whole scale in the North and you add that to a sen already this sense, I think, of a vulnerability most Israelis haven't felt for a very, very long time. Um, probably not since the 73 war, uh, the Yom Kippur war. And I know people who were in, I mean, I wrote about them and I've written with them, who were in uniform during the 73 war and said it was just chaos. Uh, and I imagine that's the frame of mind that that prevailed in the immediate aftermath of what happened last Saturday in the South. But multiply that by 100 uh, if Hezbollah get involved, which I think explains why the Americans have invested so much in trying to keep that from happening. I think that's their main. I mean, they have other priorities, but. Part of why you send two carrier groups to the eastern Mediterranean is is to signal Hamas and Iran. And Iran uh, seems to be in, enjoying the notion of publicly raising the temperature every few hours or certainly every few days. The imponderable is Hezbollah, uh, because even though you could argue the last big war there that Israel fought, which was in 2006, which was technically kind of a stalemate. Uh, in Israeli eyes, Hezbollah won because all Hezbollah had to do was survive. And Israel got nothing really definitive out of it. And lots of government ministers lost their job as a result. But Hezbollah also subjected Lebanon, which after all, it's co-governing and has, has to pay some attention to, to terrible destruction. 
I mean, infrastructure crushed, uh, huge numbers of refugees. And, and, and I think there will be some reluctance on the part of Hezbollah to repeat that exercise. Well, it's and interesting you say that, Ned, because Kim Gattas, who is ex-BBC and now yeah. works um think tank world, I think, uh, her initial take, and it's still her take, I think, is that Lebanon as a as a nation, as a nation state, is not capable. Hezbollah is capable of any kind of things. Mm. But she is doubtful at the moment that they would attack because the state structures behind them, they've weakened. They have no money, and they have this massive refugee population now from Syria, all of which makes action a bit more difficult, but perhaps not. I mean, Zev, you're 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 in the region, and I assume that the view in Tel Aviv is slightly different, but that these domestic concerns <coughs> in Lebanon actually can act as a break on Hezbollah's ability to simply act. I don't, I'm certainly not an expert on Hezbollah. I'm not much of an expert on Lebanon either, although I was in Lebanon quite a bit uh, at one time, much less than Ned, who was stationed there for the uh, Christian Science Monitor, and I think for maybe another paper. Or two. UPI, initially. <clears throat> UPI. Yeah. I think that Ned has made a couple of really important points. One of them is that the entry of the Americans into this in a very active way that we have not experienced before. Uh, in the 73 war, uh, Nixon did not come over to Israel and sit around with <laughs> Golda Meir. Yeah, it's important. Let me just interrupt and say that we are recording this just as the news has broken in the last 12 hours that Joe Biden is planning to fly to Israel, which is quite extraordinary. Okay, go ahead, Zeb. I met, <clears throat> this is just an aside, but I met Joe Biden on his first trip to Israel when he had that famous conversation with Golda Meir and she whispered in his ear, we have no place else to go. I didn't whisper in his ear, but I did take him around the West Bank and we had dinner together that night with a couple of other officers. And uh, he was so Zionist that it was almost embarrassing, you know, and it's like, don't overdo it. You know, you're, we're not voting this year, so it's all right. But obviously it was a sincere Zionism that he felt and that he feels. <clears throat> he also had some other some other issues. I mean, I don't think it's strictly for us. There's the issue of the American presence in the Middle East and the deal he wants to make with the Saudis and the question of where he wants to stand vis-a-vis the Russians and the Chinese as regional number ones. Uh, he also has an election coming up, although I don't think that this will be a huge voting uh, issue in the United States, but still it's mm. important for an 80-year-old man to discuss I guess to display uh, his, uh, you know, his cred on the battlefield, mm -hmm. such as it is. But <clears throat> Blinken has been Blinken. I never really thought of Blinken as being a very uh, a wartime consigliere. Mm -hmm. But I found out in the last ten days that or two weeks that he is Blinken is somebody that we can count on. I think that Austin, who's been here. Is somebody we can count on. I think that we have extremely close ties with Central Command, with the American uh, uh, command in the region. 
you know, there are some negatives also. Uh, if you take this kind of support, you also have to pay attention to what the Americans want in terms of restraint. I, I was going yeah. to say that. that, that, that <clears throat> but it's a trade-off. Israel has always said that we fight our own battles. And mm -hmm. that's yeah, not but this time around so it, heroic, but also to give us uh, room to do what we mm -hmm. think we need to do. This Ned, might constrain that a little bit. Ned, come on in. Yeah, no, I think there were, I think two uh, interesting things about uh, Biden, Blinken, and the Americans. And Zev, you're absolutely right to point it out. I would add a little bit of context. One of the striking things about this is the Biden administration, like the Obama administration, uh, like Trump, except for the so-called Abraham Accords, uh, which was a kind of uh, son-in-law operation, a franchise, have been on a trajectory of of trying to get the hell out of the Middle East, you, you know, for 15, 20 years now. The famous tilt to Asia since the Ukraine war, the tilt to Asia and Putin. And one of the things this shows and I can't remember who coined this phrase, is just because you're through with the Middle East doesn't mean the Middle East is through with you. And America is perforce re-engaged in the region now. And it has personal interest, political interest. I think Biden's horror at what happened and support for the notion that Israel is right and even has a duty to, to react, uh, that wasn't scripted. That is pure Joe Biden. He feels feels it absolutely to his core. But I think what we're seeing both in Blinken's latter-day equivalent of the Kissinger shuttle and Biden's personal intervention is that American and Israeli interests don't perfectly align here. That the, that the Americans are, I think, they recognize and are willing to have Israel's back diplomatically, to use the Biden phrase and Blinken's phrase, and to provide kind of cover with the inevitable international criticism any major move on the ground into Gaza is going to provoke. So up to that point, I think they're on the same page. But I think America does want an end game, And I think part of and it's not just about, you know, a debate between Israel and the United States. I think in the long term, their hope and they would say their strategy is there's a battle between two worldviews going on. And Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, the Houthis in Yemen represent one arc, which is blow the whole thing up chaos, prevent uh, the, the so-called Zionist entity from settling, much less, you, you know, existing in, in peace and alliance to a certain extent with Arab countries. So that's one side. And the other is kind of an arc of stability where Israel, which is economically advanced, technologically advanced, with which it has common interest, palpable common interest with kind of spunky young uh, autocrats in the in the UAE, 
in uh, Qatar, in Saudi Arabia. And there's kind of a, a natural partnership there. But I think what this has changed, what this Hamas horror has changed, is I think America really believes that they can't win that contest without more than not just window dressing for the Palestinians, uh, but for some political process. It doesn't mean, you know, there's got to be two states tomorrow. But I think they perceive that part of the problem, and I, I'm interested in what you think, Zev, because many Israelis, I think, perceive this as part of the problem. And that is that Bibi's successive governments set out to make sure there wasn't a political process. And ironically, this kind of <laughs> dance with Hamas was part of it. Never go in too hard. Uh, use Hamas to kind of calibrate tension uh, between the West Bank and Gaza <clears throat> and prevent the kind of unified Palestinian institutions with which you might have to at least talk about a long-term political resolution. And, and, and I think the Americans feel that's not an option anymore. But I wonder whether Israelis feel that's part of the issue. Once more, I can't really speak for what all Israelis feel. <laughs> I can tell you what yeah. happened here and what I feel. The Trump administration presented a program which foresaw a Palestinian state of some sort in about 70% of the West Bank mm -hmm. and maybe with some additional land in the, in the Negev that Israel could give. And uh, Bibi couldn't really say no to Trump. <clears throat> and he didn't say no. And uh, Palestinians didn't want it. They, they, they walked away from it. I think Bibi was probably relieved that they walked away from it because I don't think he wants it either. But there was a time that if the Palestinians had said yes, we would have found it very difficult to not go along with the American plan. That happened also with, uh, you know, Ned wrote a really good book about uh, Ehud Barak, who was at Camp David in 2000 and was on the verge of making a, some sort of a deal. And uh, Arafat walked out of that deal. Ehud Umar tried to do it eight years later, seven years later. The Palestinians don't really want to deal with us. They want a deal, but they don't want the kind of deal that we can live with. And the more it's true that the Palestinians in the West Bank are not mostly Hamas, although a lot of people support Hamas out there. But uh, there's a concern that they will turn into a Hamas if they have their own state with weapons. So um, the idea that we can make a deal is a good idea. I don't think that we should you know, have 2 million Palestinians who are non-citizens and the rest of it. But I don't think that they can be armed. And if that's a choice between not arming them or not and letting them and not letting them vote, mm -hmm. for example, and taking uh, arrows from the United Nations, or there won't be a deal. What, the deal what? When the Palestinians say, yes, we understand, we get it, you're here, you're not going anywhere, mm -hmm. and we don't really need weapons, heavy weapons, we'd rather start with the state and see where it takes us. And I could go along with that. I don't know. Yeah, and, and yeah, I... But you 
guys, <laughs> Michael, you're the boss, Mike. No, I'm not. I'm just, <laughs> you're I, the host. I, I, I'm just the conductor. You guys play and come in, whether I have a downbeat or not. <laughs> um, look, the, no, the deal is that the, what I was going to say, just to shift the conversation along, is that the ability of the United States, because that's where we got into this particular pathway, is to impose anything, it seems to me, is historically proven to be nil. The best the U.S. can do is, as in 1973, I mean, Henry Kissinger did his shuttle, uh, was on the phone with Dobrynin, and somehow both the Russians and the Americans, the equal big brothers there, were able to impose some kind of ceasefire, which ended the war and left both sides to figure out what to do next. It seems to me that there's nothing that a president not facing an election and able to do whatever he wants at that moment, which is Bill Clinton in in 2000, not able to bring, you can't make people, you can't make the two sides agree. And I think, yeah, yeah I, th- I think I would make a separate point, and I think it's borne out by the the killing punctuated by diplomacy, punctuated by more killing. We've all seen, sadly, over the decades uh, in this conflict, and that is even when the Americans can't facilitate or certainly can't force an agreement between sides, um, the absence of American involvement is almost inevitably worse. Uh, the absence of any process where potentially, you know, they can disagree, sides can walk out. Um, it, it, it's it's generally true. And I, uh, I think this has been particularly evident, evident you, you know, in, in the last decade or so that for all, uh, that America gets wrong, and like any country, and particularly a major power, it does get things wrong. Its presence is more a force than stability, than just throwing up its hands and walking away. And I think that's the recognition <laughs> that is reflected by America's forced reengagement in the region. And I think, as I said, I'm 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 pretty sure one of the things that they've come to is a sense that even if Zev, you're right, which I'm sure you are in the short term, I'm sure there's no appetite, particularly after what's happened in the South for, you know, mutual trust and let's arm everybody and make up and sing Kumbaya and all that sort of stuff. Even if that's not practical, I think the Americans will feel strongly you've got to be talking. There's got to be some political alternative to just hopelessness, because that's not a good thing for the Americans. Uh, They would argue, although it's not their call, obviously, that it's not even a good thing for the Israelis. I think that's why part of their re-engagement. What what, what I'm curious, though, is um, how you see, uh, we we were a little vague when when we spoke, christened Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, a wartime <laughs> consigliere. We, everybody's seen The Godfather, so we know what, what that means, but we also 
don't know the specifics. How, are, are there any specifics leaking down to your level of the street in Tel Aviv about are his journeys around the Middle East about getting hostages freed? Are they? Is it about hearing out the red lines of prospective partners of Israel via the Abraham Accords and, the, and whatever is left of contact with Saudi Arabia? Or is it about warning them all off to say, don't get involved, Israel needs to do this? Uh, you know, you said if it gets down to my level, it has to be pretty blatant for it to reach my level. I'm not <laughs> Come on, you're engaged in day-to-day reporting on this, and I just have my impressions. I think that the Americans, and Blinken is going to countries that are American allies, to Egypt, to uh, Jordan, went to Qatar, which is not an American ally, but okay, mm-hmm. but to the UAE and to uh, uh, Saudi Arabia. And they have interest, America has interest in those countries, which go beyond their relationship with Israel. And I'm sure that he's trying to bolster up the flow of oil. I'm sure that he's trying to, um, you know, make other arrangements that America has to to nail down the relationship America has and the understandings with other countries in the region. That's perfectly legitimate. That's fine. I want to say one thing about, since we've both been talking about, or uh, all three of us mentioning now now me, mm-hmm. uh, Eud Barak. Mm-hmm. Eud Barak <clears throat> is a former prime minister. He's a former defense minister. He's a former chief staff of the army. <clears throat> he's probably one of the smartest public figures that Israel has ever had. I'm talking about IQ, smart. In other words, I think he's not too smart, but that's not my, that's not the point. He, um, he has been saying that although he hates Bibi and although he hates this government and he's been an active partner in trying to overturn the government in the last nine months, he made the point and he's made it several times that either, even if we have a two front war, it's not an existential threat to Israel. And I think that people can get a little bit overheated here Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what the actual threat is. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't diminish that threat. As I said before, it would be unbearable, Mm -hmm. but it's not, it's not life ending. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's that's interesting. I hadn't seen that. And, and I find that I would find that reassuring if I were in Israel, because uh, one thing he would know about is pretty much what Hezbollah has and what Israel has to counter it. So so maybe it's, maybe, I, I hadn't been aware of that. And, and there, are, there are other two things that, two other things at least that I think are worth bringing up in the context of what is going on in Israel. For one thing, uh, the Arabs of Israel have been very, very quiescent and uh, uninvolved you know, we're not seeing demonstrations as we saw, you know, a couple of years ago over al Aqsa. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it, as they have in previous wars, the Arabs of Israel, Israeli citizens who are Arabs, have been loyal citizens. Whether they are secretly rooting for the Arab side, I don't know, but they seem to be loyal citizens. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we need to take into account, especially with the 
with a fanatic like uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir as the head <laughs> of the police here. Um, the other thing that's been good, in, in my opinion, is that after nine months of total public acrimony between the BB side and the non-BB side, that we now have a government of national unity, which doesn't include everybody, but it does include the most important person, and that's uh, Gantz, General Gantz, who was the head of the, uh, the, the whatever they call that party in English, but a centrist party. And um, it will put pressure on the other opposition party, which is led by Yair Lapid, to put aside all of its poisonous feelings about Netanyahu and to join this government. They need to do that. Not because we need the votes, but he's got plenty of votes in the Knesset, mm -hmm. but because uh, for its own survival, the center left needs to get on board with this. This is a national issue. It's not a political issue. It's not a partisan issue. And they need to stop trying to frame this as a partisan issue. Obviously, as I said before, Netanyahu failed as prime minister in the same way that Golda Meir failed in 73. He and Begin in 82. And the failure of Begin in 82 is a little bit different. He also failed. I mean, he failed too, but he resigned. He couldn't, yeah. uh, he understood that what he had done. Golda yeah. more or less resigned also. Yeah. Netanyahu is not a man who is capable <laughs> no. of believing that he's responsible. He's very, very good at, dis at discerning uh, responsibility on the, on the part of others. <laughs> but uh, he's not good. I don't believe that he'll resign yeah. uh, unless he's forced to somehow. Yeah. But I just can't see that after the just the, the national trauma, if nothing else, and and I think over time, I can't imagine there not being a political price for this, even for someone as artful and chameleon-like as Netanyahu. Well, as you say, I'm a potential voter, but I'm not a typical voter in the one sense is that I've never in my life voted for Bibi Netanyahu, not in 96 and never since then. I know him a little bit. I have uh, a very high regard for his abilities in certain areas, but not in this. He's not a, I said Blinken is not a wartime uh, consigliere. Maybe he's not a wartime prime minister. Begin, who I did know and I worked for, and I worked for him in the Likud. I was in, in, in the Likud election staff in 77 when, he, when we first won. Um, Begin was a man that I always admired, and I admired him in a way that you would admire anybody who has weaknesses and strengths, but uh, who is sincerely someone you can rely on. Bibi is not that person. He's never been that person. Okay, you can win a war without, you know, without, Golda was also worthless. I know she's got a movie out there and Mirren and all that, but Golda was a worthless prime minister, and uh, I, sh I know something about her, too, because my grandmother went to high school with her in Milwaukee. So I, I've heard reports about Golda as well, a young, you, well, as see, a young now girl. This, now, now as, as a good Jewish intellectual, I, I perceive the pattern. If you go to high school in America, 
you cannot really be a good wartime leader in Israel because Bibi went to high school Only in Milwaukee. In suburban, Only in if suburban, you go to Milwaukee. No, no, in suburban Philadelphia. He was in high school the same time I was in high school in suburban Philadelphia at the other end of town. It's a, it's a weird thing when I look at him. Say, gee, you know, you, you were you on your high school's its academic quiz team? You know. <laughs> so, but anyway, you know, I this, think I, he played I, soccer in high school. Did he play? Yeah, maybe that's why he needs the pacemaker. Maybe he's a I, jock. He had a great wartime, you know, military record. You can't take that away from him. And he's strong when when there's no need to be strong, but he's weak when there's a need to be strong. And in this, I think that's the case with at the moment. But I don't think BB is the biggest issue anyway at this point. At least it's what not my biggest, biggest issue. issue. We need a government that is. Uh, strong and be surrounded himself two good people, three good people, mm -hmm. uh, the defense minister, Gallant, the uh, and two former chiefs of staff of the army. And uh, I hope that he'll, uh, won't insist on, I hope he'll allow them to uh, help him make the necessary professional uh, assessments that are required in this situation and not political ones. I'm curious, what's the view on the ground in Israel about the hostages. I mean, because a lot is, uh, I mean, th this, this we talk about the difficulty, the, the kind of moral and strategic issue of protecting civilians in war. Israel at present, if it rolls in, could imperil not only Palestinian civilians, but its its own hostages, which, which uh, an agony- Less than five years dickering with us over one soldier. Yeah. And we had to release more than a thousand security prisoners, some of whom took place are active in Hamas now, by the way, in order to get that soldier back. They now have 199 is the figure that we're talking about, maybe more because they 199 families that were informed about hostages. And I don't think that they're you know, they may think that they'll get a big price for them. I would pay a price uh, if it were me, but I wouldn't pay the price that they're going to ask for. And uh, it's, you know, very tragic that they were captured. And, but I don't think that Israel's primary war aim can be to get back the hostages. I think we're going to have to make that as important but secondary concern. First of all, we have to destroy Hamas. The senior command, the junior command, the foot soldiers, the teachers in the UN schools who've been Hamas uh, propagandists for many years, the whole infrastructure that they built up there. And I'll just add, and to quote myself for the only time in this conversation, and then I went back and looked in 19, in 2014, uh, I wrote a column on the first, when we had our first real war, or the second real war with Hamas, and Bibi decided to manage that war. And I wrote a column uh, which uh, said, which predicted that this would happen because it's so predictable, so easily predictable. If you have somebody on your uh, living next door who's intent on killing you, but he doesn't have the weapons, you're, it's not a good idea to wait 10 years till he gets the weapons. The time to have dismantled Hamas easily 
or more easily would have been in 2014, 2015, and not, not now. Now Hamas is a genuinely serious military force. It has huge amount of uh, weapons. And as you know, to, uh, to uh, uh, liberate a country, they say you need three to one uh, offense to defense. Sometimes people say 10 to one, but in any, in any event, it's the, the advantages to the defensive side. And we're gonna to have to pay that price, the price of Bibi's uh, hubris and his self-interest in not wanting to go to war and pay the price of war wanted to manage it and he thought he could manage it we, we're talking in this very odd interval where the israeli army has not gone into gaza yet the hostages are are still in the possession of hamas and one hopes that that there's all kinds of back channel traffic trying to organize a deal to get them out if we and, and it's eight nine days since the original pogrom quiet. The president is coming. A week from now, if we reconvene, what do you think will be going on? And I'm going to start with Zev and come to Ned for a final comment. Zev? First of all, I want to take friendly exception to the term pogrom. A pogrom is when you're attacked and you can't fight back. You hide in the cellar and they rape your women and they cut your hands off or whatever they do and you have no ability to fight back. The Holocaust was, a, was a, you could say, an industrial pogrom. Today, this is not a pogrom. We can fight back. And we're stronger than Hamas, and we're probably stronger than Hezbollah. We can take a lot of things that, you know, that we have to take. We have a national ethos now to fight back, and we have the ability to fight back. So um, the uh, Zionist uh, project, was first and foremost that we would have a place that, of our own that we could defend. We have a place of our own and we can defend it. And that's a big, big difference between this and what happened, I'm talking about books. Uh, and Michael wrote a fantastic book called Emancipation about the uh, Jews before Zionism. And uh, as you know, uh, the differences that were, were not those Jews were a different variety of Jews. What will happen in the next week to 10 days? I really, I can't predict that. I wouldn't want to wait 10 days and go back and look at what I said today because I don't know. I know that there are 300,000 soldiers in the border of the South. Uh, they spent the last days training. Uh, some people that I know very well and love very much are among those soldiers. And uh, I think that there's, there's no doubt that there'll be or almost, I don't want to say there's no doubt. I think it's probable that they're going to be used. Uh, how they'll be used, I don't know. And it depends also on what happens in the North, because if the North has to be reinforced, then the, the numbers change. But I am very confident in saying that we will be here 10 days from now uh, in this country, and we'll be here 10 months from now, and I may not, but the country will be here 10 years from now, and uh, this is a done deal. Nick? Yeah, I, I don't think any of us can say what will happen in a week from now. I think it is significant that if you'd asked us four or five days from now, as the great majority of these 300,000 troops to which Zev alludes 
were already there in place and could have gone in. I think the the expectation was something would have happened by now. And I think it's significant, one, because it shows the degree of American engagement, the delicacy and the, the, the kind of smarts of American engagement in this sense, that it's not a question of America coming in and trying to restrain Israel, although I think there is some restraint going on. It's a it's a conversation among allies within American administration and American president that Israelis can see is personally engaged, that they know where his heart is. And I think that makes this wartime relationship a little different than it has been in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the final thing I'd say is I think part of the delay so far, but we will know if we reconvene uh, in a week or two or whenever. I sense that part of the delay is not just the Americans or Blinken going back and forth. I, I think there's a sense among this expanded government, which after all includes Benny Gantz, who's a, a former military chief of staff, that slogans aren't enough, that saying we'll demolish Hamas, we'll wipe them from the face of the earth, every Hamas person is a dead person, you know, all the things that Bibi and some other government ministers are saying. It's the responsibility at least in military terms, I know, Zev, you're reluctant to talk about the political morning after. It's the responsibility of these military people to figure out what does that mean? How do we do this? And yes, what happens? How do we end this? Because every every military operation, particularly one like this, needs at least a putative goal. And And the final footnote, if there's an all-out ground offensive, house to house, you know, street by street, that's not going to be easy even for a well-trained ar ar army. It's deadly. It costs lives. And I think the military leadership in Israel knows that too. So, so I think that's partly why we're here talking in what I think, Michael, you called a, a, a kind of lull. And I think it's unforeseeable how long the lull will, will take. But I think the the core message is that particularly with elevated emotions on all sides, different interests on all sides, this is a lot tougher than it looks in the headlines. Ned Temko and Zeb Chafetz, thank you both very, very much. Maybe we will reconvene in a week or two weeks or three months because this is not a crisis that's going away. Thanks for making the time, fellas. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. My thanks again to Ned Temko and Zev Chafetz for making time to speak with me. I fear there will be more episodes on this subject in the months ahead, and I hope you will continue to listen and visit the Substack and make a donation so I can continue this work. Thanks.